giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Matt Daniels, journalist at The Pudding. Matt, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me. So, first of all, your domain for the pudding is very cool, if I could say. Can you give people what that is? Yeah. uh, So, you can find our publication on the internet via the domain pudding.cool. There is a dream state where we own the pudding.com, but that is not a financial (laughs) reality at the moment. I want to get into what the pudding is, but I'm, I'm curious... You also have another website, polygraph.cool. Have you found that a non-standard domain name matters either positive or negatively? I would say it's more on the negative side than the positive side. Oh, that's too Uh, bad. Yeah. Well, I think it depends. I think for some instances, the domain name is... It's understood that it's just the top-level domain is what the .x is called. And Mm -hmm. for some organizations, it wouldn't matter, like thoughtbot.studio or thoughtbot.design or something like that. People would understand the name of the company is not thoughtbot.design. There's actually a lot of people who think the name of the publication is pudding.cool, which is Mm. funny. And I've always like, okay, but you know that's just a domain, right? But I'm starting to understand why people think that. And it's because when you email someone a site, Google doesn't automatically hyperlink the URL pudding.cool. So it just actually looks like the name of the thing that people are sending. So it's just highly confusing due to like, I think text parsing. So yeah. it's a pro and a con depending on like what the domain is. Okay. So let's take a step back now. And how do you describe the pudding? Yeah, the pudding is a publication first and foremost. So we, we publish editorial and I would think of it almost as like an online magazine for visual journalism or visual storytelling. Mm-hmm. Because it's visual, we often rely on projects that are data-led because you can make fancy charts rather than writing long-winded essays. And we try to pick projects that are in the public discourse, that are around topics that are debated, but not necessarily around the news cycle. Uh, So you won't find anything on the pudding that's about the news or which candidate is highest in the polls. Uh, There are plenty of other great newsrooms that do that very well. So we try to pick projects Mm -hmm. that will be as relevant next year as they are when we publish them. Uh, So they just don't necessarily have a shelf life like typical news articles do. And I want to pull out some important parts, which this is a thing, like you're a team of journalists who are working on this magazine, basically. Yeah, yeah. It's not just a website where people submit things, and it seems like you do collaborations and that kind of, but it's a real thing that really exists as a journalistic endeavor. That's exactly right. We, we've grown from one to eight, will be eight this month, and it's been pretty slow. It's been three years of very slow growth of one or two people a year. That's mostly from a financial perspective. We just needed to make sure that enough money was coming in to pay everybody before we hired someone. Mm -hmm. There's a couple ways journalistic editorial entities are funded. So we're bootstrapped essentially. And it's never been about just being like a one person blog. It's always been about creating something that feels more like a collective or a group of creative folks putting together visual articles on topics they care about. So yeah, it is it is a, a small cohort of folks working on this project. Is this a new idea? Is like an independent collective of journalists who are working together 
on their own thing new or is this something that has existed throughout sort of the history of journalism? Do you know? I think it's always existed in magazines. Mm -hmm. So this is Mm -hmm. not new, in my opinion. The way we make money is probably slightly new. And that's usually just that's just a function of how media works today. But right. in terms of people making stuff on the internet, not around the news cycle, is not a novel idea by any means. Right. And we're just focused on something that isn't necessarily domain specific. So it's more how stories are told versus what stories are told. And um, we have a few constraints that just make it a little bit easier to run the whole thing whether it's around topics around the news cycle or not, or how long we'll, we'll spend on a project and the type of skills that will be needed to bring a project to life. But yeah, I would say there's plenty of other publications out there that are very similar to ours in, in spirit. But you alluded to something that makes you, you different, which is you're not ad-driven, and you're not really subscription-driven either, but I understand you have a Patreon where people yeah, can Yeah, that's exactly right. Support. So it's kind of an interesting time for media. There's a lot of ways to make money or have money, not necessarily make money. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you think about an individual, there's a lot of interesting ways for an individual to make their living building stuff on the internet. Patreon is one thing that we're doing right now. And if you like the pudding, you should contribute on Patreon. (laughs) Just Google the pudding Patreon. You can find us. So there's Patreon. There's people taking individual subscriptions through something like Substack. And there's like people kind of running ads, but a lot of it is it's kind of embedded in their content. So if you think about a big mm-hmm. YouTube creator, they'll often say this was brought to you by blah, blah, blah. That ad is embedded in their content. Um, okay. But then when you work up to something more complex where it's not just an individual, there's kind of three ways by which people make money. The first way is that they are venture funded. So they get a bunch of money to get big really quickly. And hopefully they reach a readership where they can then begin selling ads. Uh, So Mm -hmm. if you're not doing that, it's really hard to sell ads for like a tiny thing. (laughs) Right. The second thing is nonprofit or philanthropic. And that's great too. And there are plenty of philanthropies and billionaires funding media right now. And a great example of that is ProPublica. And they've been kind of the, I would say, the best example of what philanthropic money can do to support journalism. And there's actually a lot mm-hmm. of nonprofit newsrooms even launching now, uh, which look very different than traditional newsrooms that had the business ad side. And the third way is kind of a hybrid of what we're doing and and probably what most media companies are doing today, which is a combination of selling ads and doing content creation on the side. Uh, so if you look at any major for-profit journalistic entity out there, most of them are building content for brands. The New York Times or Fox or Atlantic, they all have content studios where they're essentially ghostwriting for other brands. Some of that goes on their own site. So if you were to go to the Atlantic and then look for Rethink, that is an entire arm devoted to creating content for brands that actually ends up living on the Atlantic. Uh, So Mm -hmm. we do kind of the same thing. We make money by ghostwriting for other organizations, basically building projects like The Pudding for another brand. And then Mm -hmm. that has enough margin to pay for editorial projects on the pudding. That's kind of where we've landed today is the thing that gives us the most creative freedom on projects and also has enough margin to make sure that we're paying ourselves enough to do the work. Is that the primary reason why you've landed on that model or were there other things that pushed you in that direction? It's kind of the easiest. Mm -hmm. It is harder to do if we weren't doing something so technical if you were mm-hmm. just writing, 
uh, let's say you're doing just creative writing, it would be harder to probably get brands to pay for it. But because we're doing highly technical work, by technical, I mean a lot of software development, those are skills that a lot of brands and agencies don't have. Uh, so they're mm-hmm. willing to outsource that work to us. So the nature of doing content studio work for us is probably a little bit easier than for The Outline, for example, which is another new media publication that is leaning more into like a, a New Yorker for millennials. But the nature of writing is much more commodified than data mm-hmm. visualization or visual storytelling. So it's a lot easier for us to do that. And then the other stuff is a lot harder. <laughs> so it's hard to find a billionaire to give you a lot of money and also make sure that billionaire keeps <laughs> oh, giving man. you money. I know, right? <laughs> so we've always thought about grants and it's always just never been like urgent. It's like, well, mm-hmm. we could put all of our eggs in a Knight Foundation grant, which would be great. I would love money from a foundation. But that comes with a lot of baggage and a lot of risk and a lot of like relationship development. And you know, that's why heads of nonprofits make hundreds of thousands of dollars. I think the head of ProPublica makes north of 500K. And that's because they are there to have that relationship with the the donors. So that's a hard thing. And I think it it pays out a lot if it works. But, you know, Pacific Standard, which is a magazine that was running for several years, just closed up shop because their funding dried up. So there's also risk with going that route as well. So you mentioned the work that you do at both the pudding and at Polygraph is highly technical. You're building software. It's interactive. It's visualization. What is your background? Yeah, my background is building PowerPoint slides. (laughs) (laughs) So I was in consulting for seven years. And the thing about consulting is you can't just tell people what to do. You have to like make an elaborate PowerPoint deck where it looks very rigorous and it's really long and there's fancy charts. And then people are like, okay, yeah, we'll do what you say. I used to joke with my colleagues that there's a lot of vanity rigor. Like if your deck is less than a deck being a PowerPoint slide presentation, Mm -hmm. if your deck is less than 20 slides, you know, it feels less rigorous. So you'll often see these decks from McKinsey and all the major consulting firms that are just hundreds and hundreds of slides to create the sense of rigor, even though Mm -hmm. you probably would get to the same answer with much less research. So I was the type of person when I would make a presentation it would be like pixel perfect. And I was basically teaching myself design by trying to communicate the recommendations we have for clients with slides. And that basically built a lot of reps around design. Like how do you take an idea and you communicate it visually? Because again, you can't just put bulleted lists in PowerPoint slides. They need to be like, you know, Venn diagrams and flow charts and arrows. Like the trick is every slide has to have some sort of visual representation of what you're saying. So that translates to, okay, so if we're trying to say something, how do we visually communicate that? And then that translates into taking an idea that we think is interesting in culture today, and how do we communicate that visually as well? So that would be kind of the through line between what I was doing prior to the pudding and, and what I'm doing today. To talk about the presentation, so yeah, you're right, like these traditional large consulting companies are are generating really huge presentations. Are they actually giving those, the full presentation? Like what is the form that that's being digested in? Yeah. People probably aren't giving presentations with hundreds of slides in them, right? No, no, by no means. It's like an executive summary presentation, and then it's like, here's our background, and it's also in PowerPoint yeah, presentation. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I can't imagine anybody sitting through 100 slides. 
Like even if you spend <laughs> two minutes on a slide, now you're at 200 minutes, you know, right. that's a lot of hours <laughs> on a presentation. So right. there's probably right. like a 10 slide presentation, but I've never seen a consulting deliverable that's less than 50 slides. And that's because right. the research is now in slide form. And then the consequence right. of that is that you can't just put text in slides. You have to make graphs and charts and boxes and pyramids and stuff like that, right? You know, mm-hmm. uh, Jeff Bezos was really famous at Amazon for basically getting rid of PowerPoint because he realized everybody right. was just spending their time making an idea into like a pyramid shape when it really just needed to be well-written paragraphs. So he famously killed PowerPoint and made people write memos because writing your ideas is also requires a lot of thought. And if you're not pixel perfecting slide design, you're just writing what you're trying to say, your ideas will develop a lot better. So yeah, I, I'm all about writing, but the game right now in consulting is PowerPoint slides or whether we like it or not. And no client wants to see a Word doc. <laughs> so <laughs> It's really interesting because in our work, we don't do presentations like that typically because we're a different kind of consulting company that actually executes on things with design thinking and design and development. And so the sort of presentation model and recommendations and all that kind of thing, we've opted for, instead of that, bringing everyone in a room together and developing that understanding together. Mm. And that's super effective when you have a small group of people that you're working with that are capable of making decisions and operating independently. It becomes far less effective when you're part of a larger organization and you're not dealing directly with decision makers because you do need to communicate what you're deciding as a group and what you're going to do to the outside stakeholders. And doing that in words, we found, is not only not effective because people don't read it and it's not what they're expecting, but even just in our experience in design and development, you know, we don't like a lot of written words when it comes to that because it becomes a specification and you start sort of like building a specification and specs are bad because you're not working iteratively. You're not, you know, working collaboratively. And so it's one area where, you know, we've tried to navigate that in ways that are authentic to us, but it's certainly where we hit up against sort of what the outside world expects. Yeah. I mean, I think when it comes to making things, no one wants to work in slides. (laughs) I mean, I just finished Basecamp's Shape Up book. Have you read that yet Mm. or know of it? I know of it. I haven't read it yet. They they talk a lot about like, how specific do you want to get? when you're communicating a thing to build. And they talk a lot about you need enough specificity so that people can go execute and not feel like they have no idea what they're making. But you also Mm -hmm. don't want to overly specify so that the designers and developers can get to a solution that they know works because they're closest to the problem. So they famously don't like wireframing because that already begins to communicate a design structure around aspect ratios of, of things and dimensions and how big one thing is over another. So prominence and they're like, we're not even there yet. You know, the designer should do that. So I thought that was really interesting, but I think when it comes to strategy work, that's maybe where slides and word docs are really hard to replace because communicating a strategy, I feel like has always been something that should have like excitement and wonder and, feeling so you want to have a like a sexy design like something really really slick which is you know 
something that a lot of the big consultancies do. They want to have a really, really nice presentation for the C-suite. So that was kind of the game that our consulting firm was in. Like, can we build Mm -hmm. a really, really compelling deck that the story is so compelling that the strategy is more than just the words that, that were on the slide? So now with Polygraph, organizations are are bringing you on to create, like you said, content or almost like a, a branded version of the pudding. That's exactly right. Yeah. How open-ended are the engagements that you have with those organizations? Do they know what they're going to get <laughs> or are you sort of like organically creating it for them? And how do you how do you pitch to them? And, and what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, it, everything has a different level of definition. Mm-hmm. I imagine that there are clients that come to you, and some of them are like, we need to build some sort of app for our customers, but they don't know what app to build yet. So there's some sort of discovery process required to figure out, well, what are we going to make? Right. Or they come to you with something super, super specific. They're like, we actually hired McKinsey, <laughs> and they told <laughs> us to build a chat app with our customers. And here's a wireframe and like all the features, and we just need you to go to execute and make it look gorgeous, right? And so... You're probably a little bit annoyed when that happens, but right. you know that's that's actually sometimes a really good project because has very low risk in terms of the client being happy or not. Because end of the day, they just need it to work. They need the chat app to to do its thing and and not look egregiously bad. And mm-hmm. so our projects are very similar. There's some the clients have come to us and said like, we know exactly what we want to make. Here is the idea that we need to visually represent. Or here is the data set that we want to communicate and the insights that we want to communicate narratively. And then we just need a partner to execute on that idea. We need you to write, go back to the ghostwriting metaphor, I know my story, I just need someone to write it. Mm -hmm. So those projects have their pros and cons. And then on the flip side, we've worked with clients in the past where they have data, but they don't know what to do with it. But they know that it's compelling enough to reach some sort of business goal that they have, whether that's traffic or relationships with a certain audience. It's like this data we know has a power to meet those outcomes if told mm-hmm. visually in some compelling narrative. Uh, so we're brought in to both articulate what that story is, what is the insight and the data, and then also visualize that into some sort of story. So basically, it's been a range over the past three years in terms of the projects that we've worked on. So how does that contrast with where your ideas and how you go from concept to execution for the pudding and what appears there? Yeah, client projects have a very different path than what we'll call non-client or just editorial projects. For an editorial project, um, we're actually experimenting with our process now. We're taking a lot of inspiration from Shape Up by Basecamp that I mentioned earlier. But Mm. for the most part, those ideas are coming from the team or from the outside world. We take pitches from the public and they'll they'll say, hey, I have an idea where I have this data set and this is the insight that I want to communicate visually. And then we'll work with that person to bring that to life on the pudding. But most of our ideas come internally. And then we have a process that tries to keep us honest from a timeline standpoint, tries to introduce some constraints in terms of whether an idea is right for the pudding or not, whether it's going to actually communicate the thing you think it's going to communicate, how much space you're given to complete the project, both write the story and do the design and then eventually code it and put it on the internet. So that process 
is very different than a client process because the client process obviously has clients. So you have to have check-ins and feedback and make sure it's meeting whatever goals they have for the reason that they hired us, right? So a lot of those things need to be addressed in a client-facing process, mm-hmm. which just is going to take a different trajectory than something that we just do exclusively on the pudding. Are there times where you're exploring an idea and it's not coming together? Yeah. We've, over time, tried to mitigate the risk around mm-hmm. projects that don't work. And how do you do that? Yeah. How do we do that? So, yeah. I mean, there's basically the risk that we start a project. We're like, oh, it'd be really cool to do a thing on dog breeds. We'll just pick that topic, right? Mm-hmm. And we have this idea maybe that like, let's just say certain neighborhoods in New York City are more likely to have a certain dog breed. And I think there's like a data set on the internet somewhere about dog breed by lat long in terms of like where they're registered in New York. So let's say we have that idea. And I mean, that's a pretty high level idea. Like, I don't know what's interesting about it yet. So we would hopefully have some sort of period of time where we would go explore that idea and see what's interesting about it. Like maybe there isn't any, anything interesting that none of the neighborhoods Mm -hmm. over index in a certain breed. Um, And the ones that do, maybe it's just noise in the data because there's not enough data points and you're just getting, you know, mm-hmm. weird fluctuations that don't actually mean anything. Do you have a name that you sort of call that period of time where you're exploring and validating? Yeah. Something? Right now we call it the exploration phase. Yeah. And we are going to be transitioning to something a little bit different, but that phase is hopefully trying to mitigate a lot of the risk that you start on a project that mm-hmm. isn't interesting. Because the last thing you want to do is code. Coding is expensive Mm -hmm. from a time standpoint. Um, It's hard to basically reuse code if your idea isn't going in the direction that you want. Um, It's also very taxing to to write. So doing something very small takes a long time. So it's kind of like filming a movie, right? Like you don't want to hire all the actors and actresses and the camera people and the director and get them on set (laughs) and then start filming a movie and being like, Oh crap, our script sucks. Like we're, we're filming the wrong movie or or worse. Like we haven't even, yeah, we don't, we don't even have a script. We're writing it on the fly yeah, and it's not working. Yeah. There's like a Peter Jackson film. I can't remember which one it was of Lord of the Rings where they were like actually changing the script while the movie was being filmed. And it was like a nightmare. So you definitely want a finished script, but that's sometimes unrealistic, but we're hopefully it enough in that exploration phase to have an idea of what the script is and whether it's a good script. And then we'll finish that phase and say, okay, does this, does this feel like it's something that we're about to commit a month of coding and design to? And if not, you know, it just kind of gets set off to the side and maybe we come back to it or maybe it needs more iterations or we'll make it. But then even then there, there are instances where we've started projects and it looked good coming out of the exploration phase, but then when we started coding it and designing it, it was like, oh, this actually is a bad movie. (laughs) So there's been a few occasions where we've killed projects in production as well. And that's just part of doing experimental work. If you're doing something that's super safe, it's very unlikely to get killed because you have a high probability that what's in your head is probably what's going to get made. But then you're never doing experimental new things. You're always doing something that is safe. So with experimentation comes the risk of failure. 
And if you don't allow failure to happen, then it's hard to be experimental. And that's kind of getting very like tropey from a business perspective, but it, it means a lot when you're thinking about doing new, unique things on the internet. Yeah. So once you get something out in the world, what are your sort of metrics for success at the pudding? I think it's really hard for me personally to say these are the metrics mm -hmm. because they all have different consequences. So let's say our metrics were traffic. Well, then it's very easy to fall into the trap of what article got the most traffic and how do we basically game traffic. Right. And there's actually been many occasions where we've had a lot of traffic for something and it didn't mean as much as like another outcome, which might have been Patreon subscribers or someone seeing it that we thought was really meaningful mm -hmm. or just the level of conversation that we saw on the internet. Um, so traffic is a weird one. And I've really tried to shy away from that personally, um, although it's something that we definitely track as a team. But I think for us, you know, a big outcome that we're looking for is whether we were satisfied with the project. Like, did this communicate the thing that you wanted to? Is this a project you're proud of? Did it scratch the itch that you had creatively? Like, these are really, really important things. And I think those are what predicate success for me, at least. I don't know if the rest of the team would agree, but those are more or less what we're more concerned about than traffic per se. So what defines success is a really, really hard question. And it's something that we're still debating a lot internally. Well, it seems natural to me that traffic wouldn't be your main measure of success, given that you know, you're not ad-driven, you're sort of impact-driven both impact on yourselves as a team and you know whatever you know, the community that is relevant to your piece how do you judge the impact that you've had are there awards that or you know things like that i know that there have been some in the past yeah i mean awards are awards are weird too yeah we've had yeah. a few awards that we're definitely proud of impact's a hard one too i mean these are like Defining success is really great for business. I think in creative work, it's it's really hard. Mm -hmm. If you ask a musician, like, how do you define success? You know, a musician might say, like, I'm producing music I'm proud of. Or, yeah. like, I was able to communicate an idea to that one person that was in my head. And when you get into, like, OKRs, <laughs> so, like, Google's <laughs> objective key results, or you have KPIs for creative work, it can sometimes take the important thing out of it, which is like you wake up every day and you're doing something you're passionate about. Hey, you can publish a project and get all the traffic you need from an OKR standpoint, but next morning you're waking up and starting that creative process over again yeah. from scratch. Yeah. So it's unlike a lot of the cycle, the creative cycle that you have around software or a business. It's really this intangible thing that drives people to do creative work, drives people to do artistic work. So impact is really, really hard to quantify. It can also be gamed. Yeah. We can sit there and say, well, our impact is like <laughs> some someone important tweeting a project. But even then it's like, what does that even mean? So I think impact is also one of those personal things that that is mm -hmm. going to vary from, from individual to individual. Yeah. And I think because of this ambiguity for me, it's been hard to say like, well, what is the end game of the pudding? Where are we going to be in five years? A lot of that's going to be predicated on the team's creative ambitions. But I do want to emphasize like our goal is to tell really compelling visual stories. And we do think that good work is going to be revisited by readers and something that is going to drive discourse. 
and something that I think sometimes creates culture. Like we'll do a project that doesn't have any reason to exist other than the author being passionate about it. Um, so these are more ephemeral ideas, but I think this is why I'm excited about doing this work and, and why I hope the team's excited about doing the work is that we have an opportunity to do work on stories that otherwise wouldn't be told in media. Well, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And the way that we talk about that at ThoughtBot, I think you're right. What impact means or what success means is different to each individual. And the vocabulary we use is about fulfillment and around fulfillment. And it, it gets to the idea of, you know, if you're getting up every day and you're excited and fulfilled by the work you did yesterday and to do something today, then that's a good indicator that you're on the right track, that the work you're doing is aligned with whatever, you know, you consider success as an individual. I think, you know, if you have the wrong metrics for success, it's easy to be doing, quote unquote, successful work, but be unfulfilled in it. Yeah. If you talk to any creative person or artist, there's this trap of doing the thing that gets the readership or the eyeballs or whatever, but leaves you a little bit empty inside. <laughs> yeah. And you want to keep pushing yourself to do new things. There's this quote, a creative person never wants to repeat their past successes. They want to do something new. And it's like so soul-sucking to be told to make your hit over and over again, right? Yeah. Yep. So these are things that I think might be a better vision for the pudding is how do you create an environment? How do you create a creative process where this is the experience for the people on the team that they do feel creatively fulfilled and can experiment and aren't forced to just repeat past successes. That would be like a dream scenario for me is kind of like the Shangri-La of this is like Rick Rubin's studio in California where like artists go there and make their best work. Like mm -hmm. could the pudding be a place where creatively you can do your best storytelling and we've created a process and community and organization that supports that. And, and optimizing that every year, every quarter feels like a better outcome of, or a measure of success. Like, are we better at that process than we were previously than focusing on the actual work that we're producing? That's great. So we already mentioned that the website's pudding.cool. If people haven't checked it out, they totally should. And if what you see there resonates with you, you mentioned there's a couple of things you can ask of people when they visit the pudding, <laughs> obviously just to read the information and, and engage, but you're looking for people to contribute on Patreon. And you said before that you're experimenting with that. Yeah. I mean, I think Patreon is interesting as a measure of success too. Mm -hmm. Like it's one thing to be like, oh, I write a thing on the internet. It's another thing to be like, oh my God, that was so great. I'm going to give you money for free. And that's, I mean, Patreon has a few like rewards around like contributing a certain threshold of money and you get a t-shirt or a tote or a sticker or whatever. Right. I don't think anybody is contributing to get the rewards. I think they just really appreciate the work and they're like, this is so great. I want to make sure this is around longer than if I wasn't contributing or I just, mm -hmm. I, it's kind of like that feeling when you maybe donate to like NPR or something like that. Like NPR will not cease if you stop donating, but you know that this is something that you support and that should exist in culture. And I think a lot about what types of projects lead to Patreon contributions. And it's usually not one project. It's usually a series of projects over time that someone finds compelling. Uh, so we've used Patreon since January of 2018. 
And it's something that I think we're going to experiment with more in terms of how we message it to readers and how we think about communicating with existing patrons on Patreon. Cool. Well, I wish you and the pudding all the best with that. I know it can be a challenge to build up that side of revenue. Is there something out there as well that's like a goal for you or the pudding and the group that you're working on and you might be able to share? Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the organizational goals that we have this year is for a while, I mentioned earlier the idea that you know we're working with clients and we're doing editorial on the pudding that are independent of clients. And we're a small team. We, we were six people for the past year or so. And each of those six people would effectively juggle both client work and editorial at the same time. And it was really, really hard to basically have focus because uh, you were often working on two projects at once with very different process and very different deadlines. Mm-hmm. And this year, we're trying to find a way to focus on one thing at a time. So yeah. we're actually going to be having people dedicated to one or the other during the course of the year. And that's kind of introduce an entirely new process around how we think about making stuff on the pudding. Mm-hmm. So we're this year trying this new new way of working. We are hiring someone full-time to work just on client work. And then the other folks on the team will be spending three quarters of the year working on just editorial and then one quarter of the year working on client work. And then hopefully the time and the billable hours, if you will, work out so that we're breaking even on our overhead over the course of the year. Uh, So that's the big strategy for this year is just completely blowing up how we divide up work. Mm. And uh, hopefully it works. (laughs) At ThoughtBot, we made a similar transition probably about a decade ago. And it was really surprising. It was really positive. And what we found is that when we stopped splitting our time between multiple projects, everything actually got done faster and we believed better as well. And we were more fulfilled in that work because we were really focused on one thing and feeling like we were doing our best work on it as opposed to splitting our attention, taking longer and doing less good work on two projects. Got it. So you were staffing people on multiple projects at a time. Yeah, people would work on one or two projects at a time, and then we would also have an internal project that everyone, a little bit like, you know, the pudding kind of thing where you're working on that as well. And so you're splitting your time between two or three different things, one of which was a very different process, very different timeframes and deliverables. So very similar thing. And we reorganized our schedule so that everyone could work on one client project four days a week and the internal project one day a week. But that four day a week focus on only one project dramatically changed the the speed at which we were getting both things done. Yeah. I imagine that's also a function of the size and margin you could command on a project. So I, ma- I imagine in the early days of ThoughtBot, people had to juggle multiple things in order to make the numbers work. Mm -hmm. And that over time, you have larger projects that have higher margin. And it's like, okay, we don't have to have you doing three tiny things. You're working on one big thing. Yeah, we also switched from more fixed bid, fixed budget projects to more time and materials work as well, which helped with that. Yeah, 
That's that's great. Because when you when you're doing fixed budget projects, you have to take more of them in order to make more money, and you're you might even be overselling um, in order to do that. But in transitioning to time and materials, you sort of solve that problem as well. Yeah, I think with the nature of the work that we're doing, we've been unable to like make that switch. And yeah. with some projects. You know, time and materials, it's like, okay, we can incrementally improve this thing. We're hiring ThoughtBot to devote two engineers and a product manager to improving this thing that we're making. Whereas for us, I think people end of the day need a final thing, like a, yeah. a thing that is on the internet that is done. Right, <laughs> and it's right. like, I can't handle the variability of like four weeks or four months. And, you know, yeah. I need to know, I need to know what I'm paying for. So it's, yeah. it's a really, really hard sell in that space. It's probably closer to probably what advertising agencies have, which is I need to know what I'm getting for this commercial or this ad that I'm having you create. You know, there, there can't be that budget variability. Uh, so it's a tougher space to work in when you're thinking about billing person hours. Well, if folks want to follow along with you, Matt, or, or get in touch, where's the best place for them to do that? Yeah, I mean, you can email the entire team. <laughs> so just go to the pudding, our about page, and you can see how to reach us. My email address is matt at pudding.cool, or you can find me on Twitter as well. So I was about to wrap up, but the way that you said that and a few other things caused me to ask another question, which is, you know, you're a small group. Are you like a, an autonomous collective or, you know, what kind of hierarchy and decision making do you have and how intentional are you about that as a group yeah i mean at six people it's very easy to more or less be flat mm -hmm. you know just imagine your your clubhouse as a kid and you you don't need like the president ceo of the clubhouse and then the cfo and the cmo yeah. like everyone's basically has an officer title and we've actually been experimenting with like a light version of holacracy, mm -hmm. which basically just decentralizes a lot of the decision making and creates a little bit more autonomy. So we're not as hierarchical in how we approach the work. The actual editorial that we work on is mostly autonomous. Unlike a traditional newsroom, the way most of those places work is an editor will assign stories and then you go and do the story. Or the reverse of that, you bring a story to an editor and they say yes or no. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, all the projects that we've worked on, as long as you're passionate about it, like you should just go work on it. There's not the traditional newsroom hierarchy of assigning stories or requiring pitches. So that might change in 2020. But for now, the way we approach a story is pretty much up to you. And if you're passionate about it, you get to work on it. So in that sense, it feels a little bit more like a collective. Yeah. But we do have, among the six people, various levels of experience and technical know-how. So with that comes a little bit of sense of, of hierarchy, just in the idea that some people can work faster than others. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the fastest, highest paid person can tell everybody else what to do. Cool. Thanks, Matt, for stopping by and, and sharing with us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. 
We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh-Durham, let's build something great together.